Well, good morning, New Day. Good morning. So good to see you guys. Thanks so much for coming out. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in online. However you're joining us today, I just want to say I'm so happy that you're with us. If you're new right now, as a church, we're studying through the wonderful gospel of Matthew, and we've just been taking it one little section at a time. Uh, we're in no rush. We've been going nice and slow. And uh, the section that we're covering today is Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. And in these verses, we see Matthew, the author of this gospel, powerfully argue that Jesus is a prophet like Moses. So our text is an apologetic text, and in it, the gospel writer Matthew, the apostle Matthew, is arguing and making his case that Jesus is a prophet like Moses. I recently spent the day in Bangor, Maine. Anybody been up to Bangor, Maine? Yeah, I thought it was like a three-hour trip. It's more like five hours, okay? Uh, but it was a great trip, and I went up there to meet with Pastor Kirk Winters, who's a very successful multi-site pastor, and uh, I met him at a pastor's conference, and I knew I got to follow up with this guy, try to learn what he knows about starting a second location, uh, which is something we as a church are doing this fall. Now, I loved meeting with him. I loved learning from him, and I had so many takeaways, uh, but you know what stood out to me the most, actually? It was how much Kirk and I have in common. It was unbelievable. Uh, like an hour or so in the meeting, I just took out my phone and I began writing down. I, I just could not believe all the different things we had in common. I'll give you a few for instances. Number one, he makes his own homemade maple syrup and I make my own homemade maple syrup. Number two, he started a church from scratch. I started a church from scratch. Number three, his wife is a talented singer. Uh, my wife is a talented singer. Number four, he was born and bred Assemblies of God, but ended up uh, leaving the AG to go non-denominational. And I, likewise, was born and bred Assemblies of God, but ended up leaving the AG to go non-denominational. Number five, his facility was 22,000 square feet. Our facility is 22,000 square feet. Number six, they were running 1,100 pre-COVID. We were talking about how COVID has hit the churches and this and that, and we were looking at trends and all this, and I discovered they were running 1,100 pre-COVID. Well, that's exactly what we were running pre-COVID, 1,100. Number seven, he likes a nice weak cup of coffee, and I like a nice weak cup of coffee. I thought he was saying that he liked strong coffee, and I said, oh, for me, I like a nice weak cup of coffee. If I see a McDonald's and a Starbucks to McDonald's, I go, and I misunderstood him. He said, no, I also love a nice weak cup of coffee, and so we just had that in common. Number eight, when he founded his church, he said, I used to do a lot of topical type sermon series, and I have just felt over the last few years this pull towards expository preaching, towards just picking a book of the Bible and preaching my way through it. And I was like, I've done the same, you know. <laughs> Number nine, when he told me that he lived on 90 acres of land, I said, oh my goodness, I'm so jealous. You're living my dream. By the way, in, in Bangor, Maine, I think everybody has 90 acres of land. Uh, but, but I said, you're living my dream. And I said, let me tell you what I would do if I had your kind of land. I would put up fencing and I would buy a couple cows and they wouldn't just be any cows. I would buy Holstein cows because of their exceptional milk producing uh, capabilities in comparison with other breeds. And he said, I just bought two last week. <laughs> 
Finally, number 10, to boot halfway through the day, I looked down and noticed that he was wearing the same bright white Adidas sneakers as me. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. So much in common. Now, my list was actually a lot longer, but for time's sake, I limited it down to the 10 similarities that we have instead of the 100. Uh, but, but seriously, we're just scratching the surface on all the things that we had in common. It was uh, uncanny, uncanny. Well, I bring this up because today in our text, we're actually going to see something very similar. We're going to see two men that have a whole bunch in common. This time, it's not Pastor Kirk and Pastor Mike. This time, the similarities exist between Moses and Jesus. Now, let me explain this to you because once we get to our text, you won't understand it unless I kind of give you this background information on how Jesus was a prophet like Moses. So here we go. Here's the, here's the backstory. In the time of Christ... The Jewish people were eagerly awaiting the time when God would fulfill the promise that he made to send to the nation of Israel a prophet like Moses. Towards the end of his life, shortly before the Israelites were to finally enter the promised land after wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, Moses told the nation what would happen after he died. And here's what he said. He said, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. And it is to him, this prophet that God's going to send that you shall listen. Well, over the years, God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet to the nation of Israel, but not one of them could be classified as a prophet like Moses. As we read in Deuteronomy chapter 34, there has never been another prophet in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. The Lord sent him to perform all the miraculous signs and wonders in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and his entire land. With mighty power, Moses performed terrifying acts in the sight of all Israel. So throughout the Old Testament, you had prophets, but none like Moses. None were the prophet that God promised in Deuteronomy 18 to send to the nation of Israel, who would have their ministry confirmed by supernatural signs and wonders and through mighty demonstrations of divine power. Fast forward with me now to the time of John the Baptist. By the time John came preaching in the wilderness by the Jordan River, the nation of Israel hadn't heard the prophetic voice speak in some 400 years. Well, now here's John, and he is speaking on God's behalf. So here comes a prophet. So naturally, the religious leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John this question. John, are you... The prophet we are expecting. No, John replied. Then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah. I am a voice shouting in the wilderness, clear the way for the Lord's coming. What he was saying is this. No, I'm not the prophet You've been expecting, but my ministry is to prepare you for the arrival 
of that prophet. He, the prophet, is the Lord, the Christ, the Messiah. All this to say, by the time of Christ, the Jews were eagerly awaiting the time when God would fulfill his promise to raise up a prophet like Moses. Well, after John announced the arrival of the prophet pointing to Jesus, Jesus began his public ministry. And to anyone who was even remotely paying attention, they could not help but notice the similarities between the ministry of Moses and the ministry of Jesus. Now, in preaching our way through Matthew's gospel, we've actually uncovered many of these similarities, but there's been a little one here and a little one here and a little one there. And oftentimes when things are separated, we don't notice patterns. So let me bring those all together for you. Here's just a sampling of the similarities between Moses and Jesus. Number one, Moses descended from the Jews. Likewise, Jesus descended from the Jews. Number two, Moses was almost killed as a baby by Pharaoh. And likewise, Jesus was almost killed as a baby by Herod. Number three, Moses was born to rescue the nation of Israel from her slavery uh, to Egypt. And likewise, Jesus was born to rescue his people, the nation of Israel, from their slavery to sin. Number four, Moses spent time in Egypt as a child. And likewise, Jesus spent time in Egypt as a child. Remember when Herod was trying to kill him, the angel appeared to Joseph, Jesus' father, and said, flee to Egypt for Herod's trying to take his life. Number five, Moses eventually left Egypt and came into the land of Canaan, which would become known as Israel. Likewise, when Jesus came up out of Egypt, Joseph took him and his mother Mary into the land of Israel. Number six, Moses began his ministry after 400 years of silence from heaven, and that's exactly what Jesus did. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for some 400 years when finally God came to their rescue. And in the same way, the nation of Israel hadn't heard a voice from heaven in 400 years until Jesus came to the rescue. Number seven, in Exodus 34, we learn that when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he fasted for guess how long? 40 days and 40 nights. In Matthew 4, we read of Jesus that while he, like Moses, was in the wilderness, he also fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Number eight, to confirm Moses' ministry before the nation, God spoke to Moses out loud in front of the people when Moses was on Mount Sinai, which was in the wilderness. Likewise, when Jesus was in the Judean wilderness under John's ministry, and was baptized by John, a voice from heaven spoke and said, this is my son whom I love with him, I am well pleased. Number nine, to prove that Moses was sent from God, God empowered him to perform miraculous signs and wonders and to demonstrate power whose source could only be from heaven. And God did the exact same for Jesus. Finally, number 10, throughout his ministry, Moses taught the nation God's law. And what do we see Jesus doing all throughout his ministry, likewise teaching the nation God's law? When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, he said, here are the 10 commandments. Here's all the other ones as well. And when Jesus came preaching, 
He said, here's everything that Moses taught, but I say to you. Over and over, Jesus said, you have heard that it was said. And then he quotes something from the Mosaic law. And then he elaborates teaching on the Mosaic law saying, but I say to you. So long story short, Moses taught the law of God. Jesus taught the law of God. Now I could go on almost endlessly because as many similarities as I've pointed out, it's less than 10% of the similarities. So all the similarities I've pointed out, it's kind of like an iceberg. When you see an iceberg above the surface, that's only 10%. The other 90% is hidden underneath the surface. And I haven't even covered the other 90% of the similarities between Moses and Jesus. I'd encourage you to go home today, do a quick Google search, and just start reading, and you will be blown away by the number of similarities between these two men. It's even more than the similarities between Pastor Kirk and Pastor Mike. Now, through his gospel, Matthew has been arguing that Jesus is the prophet, the one like Moses that God promised to send to the nation. In our text today, it's the climax of Matthew's argument. And we know that it's the climax of an argument, a very important text, because besides the miracle of the resurrection, there is no other miracle besides the miracle of the miraculous feeding that we're going to cover today that is covered by all four gospel writers. So Matthew's making his argument... And the climax of his argument is the text that we're studying today. The text we're studying today, it is the coup de grace, the death blow to anyone in Israel who would doubt that Jesus was the prophet like Moses. So friends, let's get into this very important text. The text that's so important that God saw to it that all four gospel writers would record it. And that's only true of the miracle of the resurrection. And besides that, only this text. So let's get into it. And as we go through it, I want you to see if you can pick out on your own the parallel that Matthew's trying to make between Moses and Jesus. And don't worry if you don't get it, I'll lay it out at the end. Here we go. There's eight things we see in our text. We're gonna cover them one at a time. And we begin with the reports. We begin with the reports. Today, Matthew's going to share with us the miracle of the feeding uh, of 5,000. That's what it's commonly called. As we're going to learn in our text, it was actually many more than that that were fed. Uh, But that's the miracle that he's going to cover today, the miraculous feeding. And this miracle came about as the result of two different reports that reached Jesus just about at the same time. The first report was given to Jesus by the disciples of John, who came and told Jesus that Herod Antipas had executed his cousin John. And after his beheading, his disciples, John's disciples, they came and took his body and buried it. And then they went and they told Jesus. So that's the first report, the report of John's death. The second report came about the same time. And this report was given to Jesus by his own disciples, not John's disciples, his own disciples, who had just been sent out two by two to proclaim the good news of the kingdom throughout the northern region of Israel, which was called Galilee. And after they had ministered as Jesus had instructed, after they had done what Jesus had asked, 
We read this, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So that's the second report. The disciples came back and said, here's how our ministry tour throughout Galilee went. So, so the one report is of uh, John the Baptist's death, and then the other report is of the ministry tour that the disciples had throughout Galilee. Well, here's the deal. The disciples are worn out physically from their ministry tour, and Jesus is worn out emotionally from the news of his cousin's death. So Jesus decides, makes an executive decision, guys, we need to get away. And this leads to the second thing that we see in our text, which we'll call the retreat. So, so the reports lead to the retreat. We read in Mark chapter 6, which is a parallel account to Matthew's account. And he, Jesus, said to them, his 12 disciples, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. So that's where the retreat comes from. He says, let's get away to rest for a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure, no free time even to eat. So you see, they're worn out, and they desperately need some rest. So Jesus says, let's get away for a bit. So he took them, his disciples, he took them and he withdrew apart, meaning they withdrew apart from the crowds to a town called Bethsaida. We learn from John's gospel that they didn't go into the town itself for the town would have been filled with people. No, we learn uh, that they went to the outskirts of Bethsaida, to the mountains on the outskirts of the town where they could be all alone. So Jesus' desire was to get away, to have alone time, to process his cousin's death, and to give himself and his disciples some much-needed rest. But friends, it was not to be. And that's because of what we see next in our text, which we'll call the rumor. The rumor. When Jesus determined that he and his disciples needed to get away, verse 13 tells us that they got into a boat... And leaving the vicinity of Capernaum, they traveled across the Sea of Galilee towards Bethsaida. But as you can see on the map, the Sea of Galilee is not very wide. It's actually about, you know, seven and a half miles wide. And the distance between Capernaum and Bethsaida, that's only three miles. So here's the deal. The people simply watched from the shoreline the direction that the boat was going in. And they began guessing at where Jesus and his disciples were heading. And it was rumored that their boat was heading straight towards Bethsaida. Well, guess what? When the crowds heard it, meaning when they heard what was rumored, they followed him on foot from the various towns uh, on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Mark's gospel tells us that the people who were able ran to where they thought Jesus might land in order to be there when he arrived. And that's exactly what happened. Matthew tells us when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now we learn from verse 21 that the crowd was comprised of 5,000 men alone besides the women and children. And when you factor in the women and the children, and remember that in those days, people had uh, much more children than we typically have today. I mean, not Andrew and I, but you know, most people. Uh, uh, <laughs> scholars estimate that the crowd numbered between 15 and 25,000 people. 
to help you wrap your brain around this number, here's a picture of Dignity Health Sports Park in Los Angeles, which holds about 25,000 people. And the huge crowds are understandable when we think about it. Everywhere Jesus went, he healed the sick, he cast out demons, he raised the dead. And that's why huge crowds of people followed him wherever he went. So when Matthew says that he arrived on the shore and there was a great crowd, think of the number of people that filled that stadium. Now, I love the Christian TV series called The Chosen. You ever heard of that? Watch that? Yeah. I love that. It's really great. But what I tell my wife all the time, I say, hon, they got so much right, and I love this show. The one thing that I feel they got wrong, they never quite portray the size of the crowds that follow Jesus. Now, I get it. It's like a crowdsourced funding deal. So they're depending on donations for me and you to be able to film. And, and at their current donation rate, they cannot afford to hire 25,000 extras uh, along with the clothing that the extras would need to be in character. So I get it. But man, they need to tap into CGI or something because the number of people that follow Jesus was astronomical. But all this to say, the rumor of where Jesus was heading, got out, and the people flocked to where they believed Jesus would land. And this leads us nicely to the fourth thing we see in our text, which we'll call the reception. The reception. When Jesus saw this huge crowd, he had compassion on them. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now, since Jesus was retreating for the purpose of processing his cousin's death and for the purpose of giving himself and his disciples some much needed rest, you would have thought that this point would have been the rejection instead of the reception. But Jesus, he didn't reject the people. He had compassion on them and he welcomed them and he did so happily. So instead of spending that day resting, he instead further wearied himself by ministering to the needs of the people. He ministered to their spiritual need by teaching them many things about the kingdom of God. And then he ministered to their physical needs by providing healing for everyone who was in need. And our text tells us that he taught them not a few things. Our text says he taught them many things. And since he taught them many things, it's safe to assume that he ministered to them for the majority of the day. But now Matthew tells us that it's evening, which doesn't mean it's dark out, just that it's getting late in the day. You see, the Jews had two different periods that were considered evening. One was from 3 to 6 p.m. and the other was from 6 to 9 p.m. And what's being referred to here is the 3 to 6 p.m. window, which was just prior to sunset. And it's the approaching of sunset that leads to what we see next, which is the request. The request. We read in verse 15, now when it was evening... The disciples came to Jesus and said to him, this is a desolate place. Because remember, they're on the mountains on the outskirts of Bethsaida. So they come to Jesus and they say, this is a desolate place. There's no Starbucks here. There's no McDonald's here. There, there's no, you know, none of those rest, no Chick-fil-A here, um, you know. And, and so, and the day is now over. So send the crowds away to go into the villages 
and buy some food for themselves. So the disciples are requesting that Jesus dismiss the crowds so that they can go get dinner. So that they could go down the mountain into Bethsaida where they could be fed. Not that Bethsaida would have had enough food uh, to, uh, you know, feed all the people, which is why they say, send them away to go into the villages, plural, to buy food for themselves. Send them out to all the different towns in this area that they might find something to eat. The crowds had been with Jesus for the majority of the day. They clearly hadn't packed any food. So the disciples request Jesus that he dismiss the crowds so that they can go eat and so that no doubt the disciples can finally get that much needed rest. But here's what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 16. He says, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. So I love this. They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, here's what we would like you to do for us. And Jesus says, well, let me flip that on you and tell you what I want you to do for me. You give them something to eat. And of course, this was an impossible task. Nevertheless, Jesus asks, you go ahead and provide them with food. And Jesus, of course, is just setting up the miracle that's going to show an amazing parallel between him and Moses. All right, this leads to the sixth thing we see in our text. And we're going to call this one the rations, the rations. In response to Jesus telling his disciples to feed the crowd, they said this, Jesus, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to the people to eat? Now, a denarii was one day's wage. So the disciples, they size up the crowd and they estimate that 200 days wages might be enough to feed the people. But Philip, who apparently was better at food math than the rest of the disciples, objected as follows. Philip says, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get even a little. At this point, according to Mark's gospel, Jesus gives the disciples a little assignment. He says, all right, then I want you to go throughout this crowd looking for anyone who has food, and then you can report back to me. Well, after doing some investigating, Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother, says this to Jesus. There's a boy here that we found who has five barley loaves and two fish. But Jesus, what are they for so many? So you see, they're discussing rations, how much food would be needed for each person to have something to eat. And while Jesus is discussing this with his disciples and having them run throughout the crowd, the huge crowd, looking for food, the people are getting hungrier by the minute. All right, this is third service, so maybe that's what you're experiencing right now, all right? But they're getting hungrier by the minute. And that's why I'm glad to report that the seventh thing we see in our text is what we're going to call the relief. The relief. Andrew told Jesus that all they could find was the five loaves and the two fish. And Jesus says, well, bring them here to me. And then he orders the crowd to sit down on the grass. So we know it was springtime. And he says, sit down on the grass in groups of about 50 each, which created little aisles between each group of 50 people, much like we have aisles between each group of people here in the auditorium, which would have aided in ease of serving them food. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing, which just means that he gave thanks to God 
for the food. In Jesus's day, at mealtime, the head of the household would say this before eating. Blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. So you see, the blessing is just a person blessing or praising God for his provision of food. It's kind of funny nowadays, we put pizza and chips before us and we say, Lord, bless this food to our bodies. No, 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 that's not what a blessing is. The blessing is not to ask God to miraculously transform the nutritional content of the food that we put in our body, making it awesome for our bodies, even if it's not. No, to say a blessing is to bless or praise God for his provision of food, because ultimately it's God who sends the rain, it's God who miraculously causes the crops to grow, and it's from his hand that we have food. So before we eat as Christians, we, we give a blessing. We bless and praise God for his provision. And this is the blessing that Jesus gave on this occasion. Jesus stood before the people and in keeping with Jewish tradition said, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And after giving this blessing, we read in verse 20, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds walking up and down the aisles between each group. And they all ate and were satisfied. And so we see the relief for the crowd. But what about Jesus's poor disciples? Remember what we read about them? That they were so busy that they had not leisure, no free time, even to eat. Well, Jesus told the disciples, I want you to now walk through the crowds and gather up the leftover fragments of bread and of fish that nothing may be lost. And guess what? They, the disciples, took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And the only thing I could tell from all my study is that one basket went to each of Jesus' 12 disciples so that they, who had no leisure even to eat, could now also be satisfied and find relief. So friends, that's the relief. The relief for the crowd, the relief for the disciples. All right, we're now at the eighth and final thing we see in our text, and we're going to call this the reaction. The reaction of the crowd to this magnificent miracle of Jesus, which the apostle John provides for us in his gospel. John records this, when the people saw the sign that Jesus had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. According to John, the crowd saw the miraculous feeding as a sign that Jesus was indeed the prophet that God had promised to send to the nation of Israel. Now we have to ask ourselves, why did the miraculous feeding specifically, why did the miraculous feeding cause them to make such a conclusion? Well, here's the answer. When the Israelites followed Moses through the desert-like wilderness where there was no food, God miraculously provided food for them. He gave them quail for the protein and fat, and he gave them manna uh, as bread for the carb. 
Likewise, when the nation of Israel followed Jesus into the desert-like wilderness, there on the outskirts of Bethsaida, where there was no food, God miraculously provided food for them as well, giving them fish for the protein and the fat and bread for the carb. So in each instance, they got meat and bread. And just as the Israelites under Moses ate to the full, to borrow a phrase from Exodus chapter 16, so the Israelites under Jesus ate until they were completely satisfied. So Matthew's not just including these details for no reason. He's doing them to draw out for us and show to us the parallels between Moses and Jesus. So why did the crowd react the way they did? Concluding on the spot that Jesus was the prophet, the one like Moses? It's because the parallels between the life of Jesus and the life of Moses were absolutely unmistakable to any Jew. And I believe actually this is why Matthew, who wrote to a primarily Jewish audience, doesn't even bother to record the reaction of the crowd. I mean, Jews didn't need to know how Jews reacted. They would have known. So Matthew said, it's redundant to even mention how they reacted. But the apostle John wrote to the churches who were filled with both Jew and Gentile. And the Gentiles weren't as intimately familiar with Moses as the Jews were. And so John just spells it out and says, here's how the crowd reacted. They saw a parallel between Moses and Jesus, and they concluded on the spot that Jesus was the prophet like Moses. So friends, what I'm trying to show you today is that Matthew is making an argument in his gospel. It's an apologetic. He's making his case. In the text we've studied today, it is the climax of his argument. If I could just recap once again, it's like this. Matthew is saying, in essence, he's saying, just like Moses, Jesus descended from the Jews. Just like Moses, Jesus was almost killed as a baby. Just like Moses, Jesus was born to rescue. Just like Moses, Jesus came up out of Egypt and went into the land of Israel. Just like Moses, Jesus began his ministry after 400 years of silence from heaven. Just like Moses, Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Just like Moses, Jesus' ministry was confirmed by an audible voice from heaven, by miraculous signs and wonders, and by mighty demonstrations of power. Just like Moses, Jesus taught the nation of Israel God's laws, and just like Moses, Jesus miraculously fed the nation of Israel in the wilderness. You see, he's making an argument. So now that we've worked our way through the text, we have to ask ourselves the question, well, what's the point of this text and how do we apply it to our lives? And that's what we're going to turn our attention to now. The point of the text couldn't be more perspicuous. The point of the text is to show us that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. And now that we know that, it becomes obvious how we ought to apply the text to our lives. Let's return real quick to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses told the nation, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. And when he comes, Moses said, you must listen to him. 
you must listen to him. God told Moses in verses 18 to 19 of that same chapter, I will raise up a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell the people everything I command him. And I will personally deal with anyone who will not listen to the messages the prophet proclaims on my behalf. So friends, Jesus was sent by God the Father to proclaim the message that God the Father gave him to proclaim. And the application, of course, then is to listen to the message that Jesus shared. We are to listen to his message about salvation, and we are to listen to his message concerning what it means to follow him in discipleship. And it's because so many professing Christians and so many so-called Christian churches do not listen to the words of Jesus and do not base their life and ministries on the words of Jesus that I personally have come to distinguish biblical Christianity from what I call American Christianity. These are two very different things and only one of them saves. The adherents of biblical Christianity, they listen to what Jesus said about salvation. And so when they read Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, they tune in, they pay attention, and they apply what they see. We read in that passage from that time on, from the time after Jesus was baptized by his cousin John, Jesus began to preach, and here was his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus came preaching the wonderful, glorious, good news that we can live forever with God in the kingdom of heaven. But friends, Jesus shared here the requirement for doing so. And what's required is repentance because it's our repentance that shows that we have saving faith. Now, repentance in a nutshell is turning from a life that is predominantly characterized by sinfulness to a life that is predominantly characterized by righteousness. Now, nobody hear me saying that if you are to be saved and be a true Christian, you never sin, you never mess up, you never make mistakes. That's not what I said. What I said is to repent is to turn from a life that is predominantly characterized by sinfulness to a life that is predominantly characterized by righteousness. Now, what's the biblical definition of righteousness? Friends, righteousness is just living in accordance with the way that God's word says is right to live. So righteousness is right living as defined by the word of God. And when we turn from sin and turn to a life of righteousness and adopt the good things in the Bible that God says we ought to do. And when we reject the bad things in the Bible, God says we ought not to do. God sees our repentance. And he says, that person is showing me saving faith. And God grants to such a person citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. But conversely, in American Christianity, the adherents don't listen to Jesus. They say, I know that Jesus said we can live in the kingdom of heaven. And that to do so, we need to repent. 
but I'm going to ignore the part about repentance, and I'm just going to focus in on how we can become citizens in the kingdom. And they say, you know, the preacher invited me to say a prayer uh, with him, and, and I said the prayer, and so now I'm good. And it really doesn't matter how I live. I can just completely ignore God's word, and I can live however I want, but I'm safe because I said a prayer. Friends, I'm sorry to let you know this, but a prayer has never and will never save anyone unless that prayer is a demonstration of the inward reality that in their heart they have true saving faith. A faith that's willing to turn from sin and turn to God and live how he says and tune into his word to see what he requires. So friends, I want to give us a test today in closing. This test is a simple question, the answer of which reveals whether we've been listening to Jesus, the prophet like Moses, or not. This is a, a test that reveals whether we're practicing American Christianity or biblical Christianity. You ready for the question? Here it is. Would those who know you best be comfortable describing you as a little Christ? Let me explain. After Jesus resurrected from the dead and the church got going and began to spread, the Greeks came up with a nickname for the disciples of Jesus who were springing up all over the Roman Empire. Now, the Greeks must have been Italian because they love nicknames just like us Italians do. I've mentioned it before in my sermons, but growing up, I was Mikey the Truth. My brother was Tony Bonecrusher. My sister was Chrissy the Fish. My cousin Nick was Nick the Nose. And my cousin Joe was Joey Bag of Donuts. All right? So I think the Greeks and the Italians, I don't know, there must be a distant uh, connection between those, those two people groups. But like the Italians, the Greeks loved to come up with nicknames for different groups of people. For example... Those loyal to the Roman general Pompey were dubbed Pompeians. The followers of General Sulla were called Selenians. Those who publicly and enthusiastically praised Emperor Nero Augustus received the nickname Augustinians, meaning of the party of Augustus. Well, after Jesus resurrected from the dead, a new group arose. And since they were characterized by behavior and speech centered around Christ, the Greeks dubbed them Christians. Christians. So you've got the Pompeians, you've got the Selenians, you've got the Augustinians, and you've got the Christians, little Christ. They, they talked like Jesus. They acted like Jesus. They, they thought like Jesus. They centered their lives around the words of Jesus. They said, man, these, these people, they act just like Christ. Let's start calling them little Christians. And it was a derogatory term initially when it first began to be used. But the followers of Jesus followed so closely to his words and so closely to his teaching. And they so lived out the things that Jesus taught that the pagan Greeks of Jesus' day could not help but call those who followed Jesus Christians. Back to the question, with those who know you best, not strangers, but with those who know you best, be comfortable describing you as a little Christ. Friends, this is exactly what happens when we listen 
to the words of Jesus. When we ignore the words of Jesus, no one will ever mistake us for a little Christ. But when we tune into the words of Jesus and when we follow them closely and when we live them out and when we apply them to our life, that's when we become a little Christ in the eyes of those who know us best. My question today is this, does this describe you? Like Jesus, are you using your life to point others to where they can find peace with God? Do you demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit? Is there a conspicuous presence of the good things that ought to be a part of a Christian's life? And is there a conspicuous absence of the bad things that ought not to be a part of a Christian's life? Are you studying God's Word each day? And are you aligning your life with what you learn, allowing God every day a little more to turn you into a little Christ? Because I love you, and because as your pastor, I serve as God's mouthpiece to you, I have to inform you that if your answer is no, those closest to me would not be comfortable describing me as a little Christ. No way. Then you should not have any expectation that on judgment day, you will receive a warm welcome into the kingdom of heaven. Now, because I love you, and because as your pastor, I serve as God's mouthpiece to you, I also have to inform you that if that's where you're at, there is nothing more that God would like to do today than help you change your eternal trajectory. So if you haven't been listening to Jesus, the prophet like Moses that God sent into the world, and you want to repent, you want to get right with God and change your life so that God can begin seeing through your actions that you have saving faith. I want to invite you to pray with me. Would you bow your heads? Would you close your eyes? Would you go with me to God in prayer? Everyone here, everyone online, let's go to God in prayer. Not out loud, but in your heart, would you say something along these lines to God? Say, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this text today where you make it clear the parallel between Moses and Jesus. It's not just this text, but it's all the texts combined that have me convinced that Jesus was the prophet like Moses that you promised to send into the world who would bear your message and show that he was from you through the confirmation of signs and wonders and miraculous demonstrations of power. God, I see clearly that that, that was Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the prophet like Moses. And God, now that I know that he was from you, I know that the message he shared was from you. And so God, I believe that message, that citizenship in the eternal kingdom is only provided for those who show their saving faith through their repentant life. So God, I ask for forgiveness for not listening to Jesus. And today I choose uh, to, to repent in the biblical sense of the word. God, I know I won't be perfect, but today I choose with your help, God, I commit to turning from sin and to turning to righteousness, right living as defined by your word. God, I know I can't do it on my own. So I ask humbly today for your help. Be with me, empower me, help me by your Holy Spirit. Remind me how I ought to live. And God, may I uh, get your help and having a hunger for the word of God so that each day I dive into it 
to see how you might want to change me a little more each day to become a little Christ. God, I pray for your help. And God, I ask that on my confession of faith today, you would grant to me forgiveness of sins and citizenship in the eternal kingdom that you've appointed Jesus to rule over forever. I don't deserve it, but God, I thank you that it's been made available to me through faith. And God, I pray all this in Jesus' precious name. In the name of Jesus, the prophet like Moses, I pray. Amen. Thanks for experiencing this message with us. Do you want more New Day Church in your life? Well, please like and subscribe on YouTube and follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Want to take a next step in your faith? Our Church Center app is the best place to get more connected. So just download the free app on your app store today and be sure to choose New Day Church in Enfield, Connecticut. We are able to offer this sermon and all others like it only because of your faithful financial support. Thank you to all of you who so faithfully give each week. If you feel led to support our ministry financially, just go to our website at newdaychurch.cc forward slash give. Thank you in advance. May God richly bless you and we hope to see you again real soon.